Uh, this morning, we, uh, we, were gonna, we were supposed to talk about vision. When a church talks about vision, it basically means a message on why they're the greatest church in the world. Um, so I was supposed to talk about why Antioch's the greatest church in the world. And so I was jet-lagged this week and laying awake, and I decided in the middle of the night um, that the thought of that sounded really stupid to me. Uh, so we're not going to do that. The, the real issue with that, too, is if you want to know something about a church, the only thing that matters, only thing that matters, really, is that God is present and breathing life into that church. And whether that's happening at Antioch is something much better heard from God than from me. So, so um, I'll let him do that side of it. Instead, we're going to look uh, to the book of 1 Kings, and we're going to speak about the life of Elijah. So if you want, if you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. First Kings chapter 18. I've heard it said, I actually heard it said in the last two weeks that when the people of God gather together, it's, it's kind of this simple little way of understanding worship and, and the preaching and teaching ministry. But worship is many voices uh, to one. It's all of our voices singing, in some sense, focused on one. We're, we're singing worship songs to God, giving Him praise. And then preaching and teaching, hopefully, the, the dream of that is that it's one voice to many, that, that somehow, way, God is able to speak to people when we gather together in a way that's unique. And so, um, just reflecting on that this week kind of was a humbling thought and also kind of an overwhelming thought. Um, and so if I can, we'll pray before we jump in this morning and just ask that whatever, whatever uh, God would want to say to us, that all of us, uh, myself included, would be able to hear it this morning. Father, we, we do commit this morning to you, and, and we want the weightiness of what we do when we come together and gather together in your name, the, the weightiness of of being here in your name, gathered underneath you, gathered here because of you, gathered here in some sense wanting you and wanting to know you more, just that the weightiness that would, would just move us, that would be deep, and that you would make us attentive, give us the ability, give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see what it is you'd have for us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So, a question for you on what this is. Is that working? Yeah? Okay, what is that? What is that? That is nothing. Okay. Um, what does nothing mean? What does nothing mean? It could mean a lot, right? It could mean, Ken didn't come with a sermon this morning. <laughs> um, if you have nothing at the end of the month, it means a lot financially. Um, if you have no job, there's nothing to go to come Monday morning. It means something, doesn't it? The interesting thing about nothing is that nothing can mean something. 
Nothing can mean something. And when I was on a plane coming back from Cambodia, I spent a week and a half in Cambodia, I was filled with nothing. And it meant something. Um, and what I began to resonate was with this passage or with this story, this narrative of Elijah. And so if you're there in 1 Kings chapter 18, we'll just pick up a little bit of it. Elijah is the prophet of God. Elijah is a prophet of God when there's a scarce supply of people that really are passionate about God because you see the king had taken on a wife. The, wife, the wife's god of choice or gods of choice were the, um, the, the gods of Baal. The, the, you know, looks like Baal or Baal. It's, but that's her gods of choice, not, not Yahweh. And so because she's in power and, and wields a lot of authority, very strong queen, uh, it puts Elijah in a really awkward spot, a real minority spot. And so Elijah comes to the people and, and he says, hey, we have, to, we have to address this, or I challenge you to address this um, because this ought not be. And he challenges them to bring the prophets uh, of, of Baal to uh, Mount Carmel. And there's going to be kind of like this, this whose God is the real God? kind of showdown. It's this interesting shootout between Elijah and all these guys that represent false gods. And he calls them to Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is kind of halfway up when you think of that typical coastline of Israel. And it was wooded and it was dense and it was elevated. And there had been, there had been an altar to God there that was destroyed, knocked over, and replaced with new altars to these new gods. And Elijah says, meet me there. Now, Mount Carmel, just so that you can kind of get some of the historical significance, overlooks um, what we know as Armageddon, this valley. Okay, Tel Megiddo, which meant uh, the Mount of Megiddo, which was right on the edge of kind of this open plain. And in the Greek, it's Har Megiddo, which we get Armageddon from. And all throughout history, this was kind of a crossroads of highways and, 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 and there was just a lot of battles there. So the town on this mount is, was raised and recreated um, dozens of times. So archaeologically speaking, you go down and you hit all these layers of a different town. And so you've got this incredibly historic, uh, historically significant area and this mount, kind of this ridge, um, off to the, the west of it, and, and you've got um, a perfect place to build because of everything else, all the materials, these altars. Now, the altar to God, to Yahweh, had been knocked down and replaced, and Elijah says, meet me there. That's where I want to meet you, and, and we're going we're gonna to kind of take what was and should be and what is and what shouldn't be, and we're going we're gonna to sort this out, Okay. So the word goes out, and um, Elijah says this thing that's you know, pretty amazing, but he says this in verse, uh, we'll just pick it up in verse 20 of chapter 18. It says this, So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel, and he assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel, the other prophets. And Elijah went before the people, and he said this, How long will you waver between two opinions? 
How long will you waver between two opinions? Is the, if the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But this wavering between two opinions um, means that you're neither in one camp or the other. You're nowhere. You're no man's land. How long are you going to do this? And so he's kind of bringing it to this decision point, this crux. So this is what Elijah says. And now the, the story goes on that all of the other prophets, it's one against many, they come. Elijah lets them go first. Uh, you have a bowl. I'll have a bowl. Uh, you put the bowl on the altar and you ask your God or gods to consume it with fire if he really exists, to, to show himself, to prove himself. And they go and they go all day and they, they begin uh, crying all the louder, even cutting themselves. They're pleading to their gods to, to show up. And Elijah actually begins to, to taunt them. Uh, which, you know, in American political correctness, we would frown on and say, you're, you know, that's, you wouldn't do that. But back then, it was evidently okay if you were the only prophet left. Um, and, and you, you know, they were going all day. But so, after they've gone far enough, he kind of rebuilds the knocked-over altar stones. He kind of puts them back. He puts his bowl on them, and he asks people to go get water. And he asks them to douse this, making it wet, even less likely to be combustible. And they make this thing wet. And then he prays to God. He says, God, uh, vindicate yourself. Um, prove that you really are the one true God. And, and he, he prays, and God answers, and God consumes the bowl with fire. And then everything turns into a frenzy at that moment. So this is like, you know, the, the decision has been rendered and everything gets crazy and the prophets of Baal are taken and they're actually killed. Um, interesting questions for that that you can bring up at Redux, but they actually get taken, killed. Um, Elijah runs over to a hill and starts put, he puts his head between his knees and he starts praying because God had brought drought to this land. And now that in some sense God has been vindicated in this whole thing, the climax is coming, Elijah prays to bring the rain back and he tells um, someone to run and go tell them to make ready for the rains because he knows that it's coming. And he puts his head between his knees again and he prays. And later on in the book of James, James will say the, the prayer of a, powerful, of a righteous man is powerful and effective because Elijah was one man. And he prayed for rain and it came. And here's this picture of Elijah with his head between his knees pleading with God. Have you ever felt all alone? When you are all alone and you're praying with God, there's something that happens in those prayers that's unreal. You plead with God. There's no one else you're talking to. You are so focused. And he is pleading with God and then you know, a cloud the size of a hand begins to form and then it grows and it grows and eventually the rains are coming and Elijah gets up, God kind of gives him that last burst of adrenaline and he runs across the desert um, and, and he ends up uh, going off by himself. This is, everything's kind of happened now and now all of a sudden, chapter 19, 
um, he's kind of by himself and he's getting away and he's trying to figure out what the heck just happened. What just happened? And that's where on a plane for me coming back from Cambodia, I have this just what the heck just happened experience. And there's nothing. It's over. I'm on a plane. I'm, I'm in the crappy class where your knees are in your chest and you haven't slept in days and you're like, man, if I could just go horizontal, I literally would sell my birthright to just be horizontal. And, and you're trying to, pro- every, there's nothing left. It's all said and done and it's all over and there's nothing to really, but, but it's, but everything. It's, it's nothing but something. It's just this funky thing. And, and Elijah is in one of these moments where he's reached the finish line. And he's got the ad- adrenaline dump. And the magnitude of the whole thing sets in on him. And he feels really, really small. Like the problems that he's dealing with are so intractable, so ubiquitous that, uh, that he's filled with despair. So let's pick this up and just read a little bit. I just want to put that word there. Maybe you resonate with it, but... This is what Elijah kind of says. He says in verse 10 of chapter 19, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. and They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. There's nothing left, man. I've done all you asked me to do, God. When it all shakes out, it's all, there's nothing left. But that means something. It means that I just don't, I don't even feel like I fit. I mean, they're going to try and kill me now too. I should just die and be done with it. And he's kind of filled with this sense of despair. Um, When I was in Cambodia, on the Wednesday that we were there, uh, a friend of mine, a new friend of mine, uh, took two others of us. And this guy works in anti-trafficking in Cambodia, which is now kind of the sex tourism capital. And he works with anti-trafficking. Trafficking is basically the control, the owning, the, possess- the possession of, and moving of people. Sex trafficking is obviously moving them for the purposes of of exploiting them for monetary gain, sex, exploiting them sexually for monetary gain. Um, on that Wednesday night, he took myself and another guy out and took us to a series of five places uh, early in the evening all the way till very late in the evening um, that rose in magnitude and, and in scale as to where it ranks out within kind of the whole trafficking spectrum and ended with, you know, a place where they, they, they try to decide whether they're going to pat you down when you walk in or not. Um, and, and it's, you know, much higher on the risk index. At that place, they would line up or they do line up young girls that are freshly trafficked. They group them, Cambodian, Vietnamese, and they sell them by the lot um, young girls 
And I sat there pretending to not be there for the purposes I, wa- I was there for, seeing and learning. And there's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom showing on a big screen. And a, and a row of Vietnamese girls lined up completely lost, confused. One girl just in a defensive position, picking her nose, and I just thought, man, that's my daughter. And, uh, and it begun to really mess with me, especially the economics of it. It's, it's amazing. A girl sells, and there's varying degrees, so there's girls that, that are in the sex industry out of economic necessity, but volitionally, there's girls in the sex industry out of duress. There's then girls that are in the sex industry out of bondage. And they are in a violent situation. They, they exist in a violent, very violent situation that they've been taken. Um, someone paid a friend of theirs to give them a drink that had roofies in it so that they could snag them. Or kidnap them. The, the team interviewed someone on Friday uh, showing them a picture of a daughter and a letter the daughter had written and, and, and basically pleading, you know, for help to find a daughter that's been kidnapped. Um, I mean, just can you imagine sending your daughter to the store or putting her on the bus to go to an aunt's house across the country and she just vanishes? <clears throat> Lack of education. Uh, lots of opportunity because of a different category of law enforcement than we have. And there's a vulnerability there that, that's unbelievable. But the economics of this thing, a girl for 5 to $10 is, is the price tag for sex. Now, in November, I was in Zurich. Zurich is the second highest cost of living in the world. I went into a Starbucks. They have Starbucks in Zurich. You can, you can get a little Zurich Starbucks mug. I paid eight euros for a latte. Do you guys know how much eight euros is? It's like, yeah, it's like 15, 16 bucks. Um, what, what, I got, what I can get a latte for in Zurich, guys are purchasing rape in Cambodia. And that was just overwhelming to me. And you understand the industry there, it's not hard to figure out. There's a product, there's a supply, there's a demand. It's as, as simple as any business model you can imagine. But to try and fix it would be like making all the rivers in America flow upwards to the Rocky Mountains instead of flowing down from the Rocky Mountains. Can you, I mean, can you just wrap your mind around that? trying to make all the rivers flow up the Rocky Mountains instead of down. The only way to do that would be to flip the whole thing upside down so that it all runs that way. And the only way to fix something like that sex industry is literally to deal with the poverty and the lack of opportunity and the lack of education and the lack of economic resources to literally flip the whole situation upside down. It's, it's so intractable, so ubiquitous. There's other parts to it that, you know, we don't have time for. 
our own complicity in it as Americans and, and the history of that country, but um, I, I was sitting on this plane with this level of emptiness. Trip's over, nothing I can do, there's just nothing. But nothing means something, right? Um, something also can mean everything. If you get a test back from the doctor, the right kind of test, you know right away that something can mean everything. I was uh, in the hospital in Cambodia and the doctor came back with this lab test that I had some amoebas that I got with Matt, probably with Matt Smith in Haiti. And uh, all of a sudden it was like, oh, that means, that means a lot. I mean, it doesn't anymore. I'm fine. You can, you can shake my hand. I'm good. Um, I had a joke, some, a funny thought actually that I gave, you know, I was saying to my wife yesterday, she didn't think it was funny at all. So I, I can't share it with you guys. I thought it was funny. It's not really funny. Um, it's funny. It, you can ask me later. I'll decide whether you can handle it or not. Um, but something means, something means everything sometimes. If you find out someone's been slandering you, that one thing overshadows everything else, and it, it means everything. You get a test result back on your health. I mean, it, it can mean everything. So something sometimes means everything. Listen to the story here of Elijah. The beginning of chapter 19 says this, Now Ahab the king told Jezebel, now that's the, the queen, scary queen. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. So he just got the death threat. That something meant everything to Elijah. You know, listen to what ends up happening with Elijah. He, he's afraid. Elijah was afraid, and so he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, and why, uh, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the tree and fell asleep. You know, kill me now. You know, and what you begin to realize is, is sometimes, and we all go through this, the stage like, you know, a teenage girl on a bad hair day. You know what I'm talking about? Like everything is the end of the world. Like, ah, it's red light. You know, and ah, it's... I mean, maybe not. I, anyways, I, it's what I think my daughters are going to be like. Like I, I have nightmares about my girls being teenagers. And, and I think they're going to be like that. Like one little thing becomes everything. And then everything means just I give up. Um, so even though he's in some sense done what he was supposed to do, here's Elijah. 
And he gets this message, this death threat. It's, it's, it's something that means everything. And he just throws himself down and says, kill me now, God. I'm done. Kill me now. I don't, I don't know, but I think we feel like that sometimes, don't we? I mean, life is messy, and, and there's just days where, where you kind of realize, you know, like this one thing, it just overshadows everything else. There's nothing I can do about it, and I just want to flop back and kind of quit or give up. I, I told you guys this once before. Tamara said I shouldn't. Um, she says that sounds silly. But it was. It was that experience for me. I remember praying. We were married. I was at home. I was like praying in this chair on my knees. My wife's working. That whole situation was silly. You know, sleeping in late, take her to work, come back, and I've got all this time. But I was was taking classes. But I was groaning and and just moaning to God about um, exams and tests. And I worked myself up into such a just, ah, just... I quit, God, take it all, screw it. And, and I flopped backwards. I mean, I just kind of threw myself backwards because that's what happens. You kind of, your body language begins to take on what's really going on in your belly. You know what I'm talking about? Just like my kids' faces, man. Their faces show what's really going on in their hearts. Um, so I flopped backwards and I caught the coffee table in the back of my head and just busted it open and... So two and a half hours later, I'm walking on campus, and, and Tamara sees me because she worked on the campus, and she's like, what, what are you doing? Like, have, have you been studying for your test? I'm like, no. <laughs> no, just wasted the last two and a half hours. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm turning around. I got all these stitches in the back of my head. And, I'm, and the whole time, I'm just like, what a, what is it's just, that's human emotion, isn't it? Just, 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 ah. Teenage girl on a bad hair day. Nothing means something. Something can mean everything. And everything, here's the kicker, when we really understand it rightly, ends up meaning nothing. So listen to what happens. God needs to talk to his prophet. And so God sends an angel Elijah wakes up, God feeds the angel, makes him sleep again. Now, I have a pastor friend. The first thing he does when someone comes to see him is he makes them go get nine hours of sleep for a week and then says, come back and see me. It's really funny. That's kind of what God's beginning to do here. Wake up here, eat, drink. The ravens feed Elijah back to sleep. Not ready to talk to you yet. And then God does talk to Elijah and he says, what are you doing? And Elijah says this. They're trying to kill me too. And God says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord God is about to pass by, which theologically in Scripture is of the utmost significance. Because we never see God. I mean, the presence of God passing by was always this thing that that God is holy and he is other. And in the temple, there was this curtain to keep the two separated. And God is going to pass by. And so you get this sense of awesomeness, right? And so there's Elijah. He's standing kind of on this rock, this prominent place. He's out there. God's about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. Wow, that looks like God. Nope, not God. 
but the Lord was not. Uh, and then after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. So ground shakes, things are falling, rocks tumbling, splits in the earth, whatever. That looks like God. No, it's not God. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, he covered his face, remember the holiness of God, and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. And they've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, uh, from Ebal-Meheleth, to because that means a lot to you, to succeed you as prophet. Uh, I'm sorry, anoint Elisha, uh, son of uh, Shaphat from Abel Mehalah, to succeed you as prophet. Yehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Yehu. So I'm going to cleanse this. I'm going to restore it. I'm going to redeem it. This guy is the first filter. This guy is the second filter, and your replacement, Elisha, is ultimately the last filter. I'm about to turn the tide, and I'm going to bring this thing back to where I want it. But then he says this at the end. Uh, By the way, though, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. End of story. Elijah goes on from there. And he finds Elisha. God listens to the bad hair day. He listens to the emotions. He listens to all of it. Everything. A despair of life. Just kill me. He listens to all of it. And in a gentle whisper, he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go do this. I want you to go do this. I want you to go do this. And oh, by the way, it's not quite the way you you feel that it is. End of story. And uh, we get the sense that everything all of a sudden with the presence of God becomes nothing. If you've been a Christian long, you, you know that there's a sense of peace that can come when God speaks to an issue or speaks to you on an issue that just brings about a contentment, a a full-orbed contentment or peace that's unexplicable. But it's because you believe Him. And you believe Him, why? You believe Him because He's believable. See, the difference between us speaking to people's issues and God speaking to issues. We usually enter in up here. Well, you must have done something wrong. You're an idiot and you need to fix your life. Um, You obviously haven't read Joyce Meyer yet. Um, So let me get you a book and that'll fix you right up. Um, You know, 
what's funny about stupid Christians to me is that if you look at the book of Job, it's, it's believed to be one of the oldest in all of Scripture. And Job all of a sudden has this messy life going on, and his friends come around him, and they're like, ah, you, must, yeah, you obviously deserve it, Job. You must have done something. What are you hiding, Job? Um, you know, this is what you should do. I mean, they, stupid Christianity has existed from the beginning. It, it, it has. It's right there in the book of Job. And we approach these things with, with the cliches and the simple patches that don't ever really sink to the level, just the core level of where people are at. And so people don't believe us. Why? Because we're not believable. Our words might be true, but, but they don't ring true. And when God enters in down here, he does so with a timing. And he doesn't even talk to the guy. I mean, he could have told him truth from minute one. You're an idiot, Elijah. Now go to sleep. No, he says, go to sleep and I'll talk to you later. And, and there's a, a timing that God uses and a, a, a tenderness he uses and a believability that he brings that, that is so uniquely God that it's unbelievable. I mean, we have the timing, like if you picture timing like uh, jump rope where two people are holding like a jump rope and you know the person's like trying to like time it. If you picture a linebacker just coming and tackling this whole picture, that's, that's how we usually give advice. I mean, our timing is just completely off. That's why we need mentors in the faith. It's, it's these things we learn by experience over time. And the older saints in the faith, it says in the Bible, are supposed to turn around and reach down and grab hold of the younger saints because there's a believability and there's a tenderness and there's a grace and there's a patience to how they disciple or encourage that is so necessary that, that the young, counseling the young, doesn't always have. We need each other. Um, we need to... To encourage and be encouraged. You know, um, off topic. Um, new page. There's, when I was in, uh, this was just a really, this has nothing to do with anything. Um, the word company. When I was in Italy, I, I learned this little cool thing. It, it literally comes from these two words. This is the word for bread. You still see it driving around Italy. The bread truck says pane on it, you know. That's the word for bread. And it literally means with bread. That's what company means. And what, how does this time? More than anything else at Antioch, we need to have bread with each other. Um, The greatest thing that I think could happen on a Sunday morning is you find some, some other couple, and you say, let's go grab lunch together. Or, hey, do you have dinner plans tonight? Or want to go to the movies or whatever? Like, hey, let's go hang. Um, let's be together over bread and share life so that either now or we're investing for later, when the time is there, we can speak words into each other's lives that are believable, that ring true, that, that have that authenticity, that, that allows 
an understanding of the providence and the sovereignty of God to come in so that everything means nothing. You know, and that is the, the, the picture that Jesus always brings is, is that tomorrow in your troubles and your worries, you've got to understand when you, when you put the sovereignty of God over the top of that, when you let God speak in or God's truth speak into that, you begin to realize it's, it's okay. It's all good. It's all good. We're, I mean, to the degree that we're even going to die, well, the emotion, I think, gets ratcheted up like crazy. But at the end, you can kind of come to a, a point of peace even with that. I have to die at some point. Might as well die for a good thing. Um, this isn't my eternity. But there's, there's a level of maturity that can even come over time. And Hebrews chapter 11 talks about that, that, that people will give themselves so to God that they will allow themselves to be led to death because they trust, they have faith in God. True faith literally reaches beyond the grave. And so we need, we need people in our life that can season our circumstances with the providence and the sovereignty of God. We need to be able to hear that still small voice. Um, let's just sake of time, let's just end here. And, you know, it, it really strikes me that for a lot of us, nothing might mean something, and something might mean everything. Uh, today, this week, this month, this last year of your life, this season, this chapter, and so uh, if you're up for it, if you're struggling, if you're just weighed down, if you've been crying out to God, if you're hungry, if you're exasperated, if you've just got despair, whatever that angst is, if you just want to stand where you're at, I want to pray for us. Um, and just that in the midst of that, God will break through and give us that sense of peace that only he can bring. It says in the book of Philippians that we present our requests to God. We come with, a th- with thanksgiving that God is there and that he is believable and we present our request to God and that when we do that, What's next? All our circumstances will be fixed? Um, it says, not that all the circumstances will be fixed, but that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds, hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, that everything will be seasoned and become like nothing because God will give you the peace that, that surpasses all understanding. That's a promise um, that's one that you've probably experienced before or I have experienced. It's something we can claim. So if you're just struggling, um, just stand where you're at. I'm going to pray for us, and then Lauren's going to come up um, and close us in song. But go ahead and stand if you will. God, it's... it's uh, it's hard for us as Americans. We don't have the same theology of suffering. We don't have the same understanding of suffering that our brothers and sisters in Christ in the third world have. We, we don't understand pain when it comes into our life because it seems like such an anomaly. But it is so much more ever-present than what we 
think it should be. Life is relentlessly difficult. And Father, there's a lot of us going through seasons of emptiness, and it means something. Dealing with pain, with relational brokenness, with financial difficulty, with health issues, with just doubts that rack us. We're dealing with things that really take over and become everything. Um, may they make us sick to our stomach and they fill our belly and we just live with that sense of worry, confusion, and pain. And Father, we pray for that now. Whether it's your will or not to change our circumstances, we pray that you would at least speak to us in only the believable way that you can so that everything can be resolved, the knots in our stomach can be untangled, that everything can become nothing, that this crazy logic of real life will, will work out and you will be glorified. Um, speak to us now. We present our, our request to you. We do it with thanksgiving. We love you. We love your grace. Father, thank you for all that you give. And I just pray you would guard us now as you've promised you will. You'll guard us. You will protect us. You will seal us. You will give us peace that will surpass understanding, that will blow our minds, that will seem crazy to our friends that saw us yesterday, but change our faces literally by guarding our hearts and our minds. And we pray that, we commit that to you, Father, in Christ's precious name. Amen.